One's in urgent care. And no, no, JP's coming down, Lou. JP's coming down. He, JP. Colleen is the suitable help meet, is standing in for her husband. That's, that's quite fitting. Anyway, um, questions to Greg, and I'll, if you want to punt to me, Greg, you can. Um, from this morning's message and the sign of Jonah and Jesus' condemnation on the crowds. Bad. <laughs> yeah, get a mic to my man Scott. So I'll just say it all. I have to respectfully disagree with you too that the sign of Jonah is a different sign, and that it still is the three days. Okay. Let's no no keep the keep the mic Scott. I, Why do you respectfully disagree? Because the three days makes sense, given that everything is leading up to his crucifixion, and that sign plays well with the crucifixion, as in Matthew 12. You know, it, it absolutely does. What in, how does Jonah become assigned to the men of Nineveh? That's what Luke says. So in what way did Jonah's time in the fish become assigned to the men of Nineveh? It could be that there's some, something that happened to him at that time, or... There's also the preaching that it mentions, yes, in Luke and Matthew. Okay. Greg, you, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, just, I so, took the answer. I'm sorry. I, see, I'm so used to this. Like, <laughs> Give me the ball. Greg. Uh, the way I see it is that they're different because they're pointing to different things. Matthew, he's pointing to the time of Jonah in the belly of the fish, but he doesn't say that that Jonah becomes assigned to the people of Nineveh. That's unique to Luke. So we have to figure out how does Jonah become assigned to the people of Nineveh because that's the same way that the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. Well, we, when we read Jonah, we didn't see any indication that the people of Nineveh knew anything about Jonah's time in the well. Uh, there's no reference to their seeing his visible you know, change or something like that about him, his time in the well. There's no reference to that. But what we do see is we see that, that they respond and they repent to his word. After he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, they believe God. That's what it took for them to believe God. And they repented. They didn't repent. I mean, the question is, what did they repent at? And Luke tells us that they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So, it's clear, or it seems like Luke's drawing the attention to Jonah's sign being his preaching, because that's what the Ninevites responded to, that's what they repented of, and also that's you know what the Ninevites got. Now Matthew, he says that the Son of Man will, or sorry, that Jonah, just as Jonah was three days in the in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth, or in the heart of the earth. That is a sign to people who have Jonah. Who and it also read... says they repented at the preaching of Jonah in Matthew. That is true. They were, they, the, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but the, son, the, the sign to this generation, which is those that have access to um, Jonah and read it themselves, the sign is, in Matthew, the sign is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. There's no... There's no um, there's nothing lost there 
it, he could tell he could tell the people of this generation that the Son of Man will be assigned to to this generation in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he could say that the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation just as Jonah in his preaching on two different occasions at two different times. Let me let me ask a question, Scott. Um, the the first the first. Well, are you suggesting that what's recorded in Matthew 12 is the exact same event as what's recorded in Luke 11? No. No. So these are, you're, you're granting these are two separate occasions because Matthew 13.1 says that same day Jesus went down to the sea. So we're in Galilee. So if these are two different events, why couldn't we have two different very similar speech speech? I mean, we could, but I still see that it could still also be the three days. Well, let me throw this in there too. Mark also has in in Mark eight chapter in chapter eight verses eleven and twelve. Mark also references um, something about this generation, but he says no sign will be given to it. He doesn't say they'll be given the sign of Jonah. He just says this is a an evil, adulterous generation, and no sign will be given to it, and that's it. So it just seems that this 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 beckoning of the crowd for a sign is a, a common thing that Jesus has to deal with, and on multiple occasions, more than one, he says that no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, and then another occasion he's like, no sign will be given to this generation. And I think that we have to look at you know what Luke gives us in order to understand what that sign means, because we know that they're different events. We know that this is not the same as as Mark. So we look at jo- or sorry, we look at Luke. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We need to understand what that means. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And the emphasis there is so Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. So the the question then is how did Jonah become a sign to the people of Nineveh? And when you read Jonah, you don't see any indication that they knew of the fish, but you do get their response to his preaching and their belief and and repentance towards God at the preaching. You behind it? Do you want to push push back, Scott? This is what this is for. Well, I have no problem with it. I mean, it it fits that it would also be the preaching. Yes. So, so So we know, let's, let's see what we can agree on. We know that when Jesus addressed the seeking of signs, which he does a number of times, he at least once in Mark says, I'm not, the answer being, I'm not giving you any more signs. Period. Right? We also know he also cites Jonah in Matthew saying there will be one final ultimate sign to come, the resurrection. Um, so in this instance, what, what Greg and I are suggesting is the answer he's giving here is along the first line. Simply, if preaching was good enough for the men of Nineveh, it'll be good enough for you. And that would explain the shift in Luke's narrative of him drawing huge attention to Jesus' miracles in the first nine chapters. And then for the next ten, there's only four. Uh, so, and Jesus' teaching now takes front and center well. as opposed to um, the, the miracles in the first half. So, so that all that demands is that Jesus can use Jonah as a reference twice in two different ways. That, that's all we're suggesting. It's possible it's there. That the challenge is, I think it's hard to come to that conclusion with Luke alone. I, I think that, and so the struggle is, yeah. so the struggle is, can Theophilus under, does Luke intend to be understood by Theophilus if Theophilus doesn't have a copy of Matthew? And 
So if you just go on, where's Luke pointing us to? Luke's pointing us to the preaching, and Luke's wording is critically different. Jonah himself became assigned to the men of Nineveh, which then means you got to go back and reread Jonah. Because I know, I mean, I remember hearing this stuff way back when I was a new Christian about how, you know, the Dagon was a fish god, and he would have been like white and bleached when you came out, and he just vomited him right up on the city of Nineveh, and and so that it would have just, you know, they see him come out of the fish, and and that. And you read Jonah, and that's just not there. It's not there at all. They're two separate things. This fish vomited upon land. Now again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, go to, he has to go to Nineveh, he's not there. And there's nothing in the narrative of Nineveh and Jonah that indicates the people in Nineveh the foggiest idea of what came before for Jonah. We do who have the book. Was Jonah, the author of the book, is trying to explain why the men responded, all we get is they believed. They're interacting with the prophetic word, and they have faith. So that's the challenge is if Jonah was assigned to them because of the fish, then you're going to start rereading Jonah differently. Then I think Jonah lays itself out as well. Whereas Matthew, it by no means demands that because Matthew doesn't say the sign of Jonah was to the men of Nineveh. So you can read Matthew without demanding that the people of Nineveh have any idea of the fish. But if Matthew is saying the same thing Luke's saying, now we have to further add the men of Nineveh somehow are aware of that. That's, that's the other reason why it's, I don't like it, is you're now actually reinterpreting Jonah. Jonah or you're adding information to Jonah that's not there. Whereas I think the stark point of Jonah is without signs, without miracles, without anything, an eight-word eight message brings an entire pagan society to its knees in sackcloth and ashes because God testifies to his word it will not return void and then that heightens the contrast of the judgment for these people pagan uncircumcised Ninevites with an eight word message with an eight word message have responded with greater fruit and faith and repentance than you guys with all the stuff I've done if you bring in the fish motif it weakens the argument as well but anyway, I mean, but to be fair, at least 50% of the commentators go where you're going. So, I mean, you're, it's, it's not that I can that prove dogmatically that your position's wrong, but those are the reasons why we, we disagree. Yeah. But, well, no, it's good points. And to make a relevant um, illustration, you know, I assume that Theophilus could play Monday morning quarterback knowing the story of Jonah, whereas I am probably that. making that assumption. I already know the story of Matthew. Matthew comes before Luke, and right, you read right. Matthew through Luke. Mm. But the, but again, that's a lot of kind of creative possibilities that you have to make line up in order to make that make sense. That's why it's uncomfortable. It's like, okay, can we assume that or that Theophilus knew that the yeah. that Jon you know the story about Jonah? Um, we can't. We can assume that Luke meant to write an orderly account because he tells us. So we try to understand things based on what Luke gave us. And then, like Jeremy said, the commentaries, the commentaries that, you know, lean on the or, or, or say that this sign is the same as Matthew, they have to do this creative sort of um, way to, to make the story of Jonah something like the people knew about the fish and everything, which it doesn't. Because again, in Matthew, it doesn't say anything about the people knowing. It just says that Jesus 
will become, or sorry, Jonah became a sign, sorry, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of fish, so, so the Son of Man will be three days. Nothing about the Ninevites knowing anything of that. But Luke sp- explicitly says, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. So if they are the same thing, then that means that the Ninevites had to have known, and then you have to do some like recreation of Jonah in order to get it to and line up. We've heard, some we pretty, and we've heard some pretty creative theories. My old, my old um, former pastor, um, John MacArthur, I was listening to him on this, and he was just going on about how Jonah would have been sharing his testimony and all the great things that God did for him. I'm like, John, you've read chapter four, right? <laughs> Where Jonah is petulant, pouting. I don't think Jonah was doing anything more than he was told to do. I don't think Jonah was striving by any means possible to win the Ninevites. God told me to give a message. I'm going to give a message. And, the, and it worked. Did, and it worked. The, the message yeah. that God gave Jonah is, I think, what we have recorded. 40 days, and or yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they repent, and they relent. And Jonah mopes about it, you know? Um, so again, yeah, it's not like Jonah's looking to give them more evidence to why they should repent. He's like, okay, Lord, you say go and give this message to the people of Nineveh. Here it is. Bam. And they believe. Yeah. Definitely giving me some more things to think about. Well, and practically in Luke, here's the difference. Is Jesus saying, in effect, I'll grant... You haven't seen enough evidence yet, but when you do see the resurrection, then you will know, which I think is what you'd have to make it mean if the sign of Jonah is three days in the fish. Or is he saying, you already have enough evidence, and so I'm done proving who I am. If it was good enough for Nineveh, it'll be good enough for y'all. Johan, Mr. Dennis needs a mic. Yep. I was just going to finish off with a neat little thing. Oh, no. So in John, we get, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And what? Who came from Galilee? Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, they, they're, and that and the whole, like, in John, we've never been slaves of anyone. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank, no, no, Scott, but I, I want to, before we get to Dennis, I want to say something. One of the things that I think is valuable about the, the Q&A time here is, is to make it clear that Greg and I and those who are ministering the word are accountable to you all, and we're not authorities in our own right. And I've said this before, you should not care what I think or what Greg thinks or Daniel thinks or the elders think if we can't explain why we think it. And so getting pushback and getting are you sure is absolutely fitting and appropriate. And I thank Scott for doing that because that, that is a big question. And, and don't take our words for it as some authorities. And so it's good to lay out here's the full explanation for why we think it means what it means. And at the end of the day, ultimately, um, you've got to, you know, you've got to work through the text yourself. So thank you, Scott. Thank you, brother. Dennis. Well, this is going a little different direction. Um, this kind of reminds me of the rich man and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, I mean, those people, their hearts were getting hardened. And, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about that later in Luke, but they, this guy says, well, send somebody back from the dead. Yes. You know, and then they'll repent. He says they had the prophets, they had all this, and they... Still Amen. didn't repent. They won't repent when somebody comes back from the dead. And, you know, they just kept wanting to seeing signs. They wanted, and a lot of those people, you know, they're just like Pharaoh. They just kept hardening their hearts when they saw all these miracles and that. And, and Yeah. And, and what is Jesus' response to uh, the rich man at, when he's in she- or Sheol? Or, um, are you ha- your turn yeah. there? You want to read it? No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the scary thing there is that we have more than Moses and the prophets. Yeah. So what, you know, what is our response to Jesus and, and His Word? Are we going to say, you know, unless Jesus comes and He does something right here, right now, I want you know, a sign like Paul got. Um, yeah, we can't stand in judgment on God. He's given sufficient evidence and there's no amount of Jesus coming or you know relatives coming back from the dead or this that or the other that will change the hearts of people and that's and let that be an encouragement to us I didn't get to this in the message but when we're sharing the gospel as well um, we shouldn't be discouraged because you know our it, it seems that the words returning void it won't return void some people will harden their hearts even at in undeniable evidence like they're they're just going to keep requesting more and more undeniable evidence but never ultimately bend the knee and bow to christ because they've set themselves as judge judges over over christ and have determined already that there's no amount of signs i mean you're just going to have to it's just like the david copperfield thing it's like okay just keep keep showing me more signs I mean, okay, that one was pretty cool. Can you do one better than that? There's no end. There's no, there's no like one sign that will ultimately, even the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, right? Which is the greatest sign of them all. The, 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 or the, um, the Jews, the leaders, after Jesus was, was raised from the dead, they, what did they do, Jeremy? They, they paid, paid, they bribed people. the guards to say that Jesus' followers took the body. So they're aware the tomb's empty. And they just come up with a lie and then bribe the soldiers to, to press on the lie. So They're going to believe, they're going to harden their hearts, and they're going to make a way for it to make sense even though it doesn't make sense. And I think that's the point. Um, you're on. Okay. So can I jump to a different topic? Sure. No. No? No. Yes. Sorry. Yes. So I shouldn't say no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he's yeah. caught. Okay. So no, yesterday. Yes. yes. Wonderful. Okay. So yesterday, um, two Mormons came to my door, and I talked to them for about five minutes. And I really didn't have much that I could respond to counter their arguments, which is basically just that the Book of Mormon is also necessary. So I need some apologetics on why the Bible itself is sufficient, why it is enough. I think we have like don't. eight sermon series on that, Jeremy. Don't Six. Six? Six? Okay. Um, I might have no, missed that. No, that's a great. I, I, no, that's, no, that's a that's a good question. Um, so specifically, the question you're asking is, why do we not need a supplement to this? That and um, I'm willing to sit down with them again and talk to them. So okay. maybe just a couple talking points that I can push back at them because there is they need to hear the gospel, the true gospel. So right. how can I tell them the true gospel without completely like beating them over the head with the Bible, which they also read? But right. cause them to seek it for themselves. Right. I, I, I think the simplest way to deal with the Book of Mormon is to show how it contradicts the scripture. So if you because right. in one sense, um, in, in one sense we have how how did the church know when the canon was closed? Well they they just they heard his voice in these books and they didn't hear his voice in any other books, and they came together at, at Constantinople and Nicaea, and they they, Jesus' sheep heard his voice, right? And these, these 66 books. And we know that God, even in the end times, will send up two prophets, and so there'll be more revelation coming. So um, I think the easiest way to do it, rather than trying to argue for the close of the canon, which I think you can do, I think it's a more complicated argument, is to uh, get them to agree, can Scripture contradict Scripture? No. 
Okay. So if, if I can show you that the Book of Mormon contradicts... The, new, the reason I reject the Book of Mormon is I, I believe it contradicts things the Bible says. Right. And, and get them to agree. If it did contradict the Bible, would that then disprove its claim of inspiration? I mean, you can get into the whole story of Joseph. I mean, it's laughable how Joseph Smith yeah, got I've, his I've stuff. About it. But you can just skip right to there. And then I would press them on the deity of Christ. Yes. And what you'll find, at least the last time I talked to a Mormon, it took me about 25 minutes pressing to get him to agree that we disagreed on anything. Uh, yeah, because they're very kind, they're very congenial, and they will... And they're co-opting our terminology. It used to be that they were trying to be separate, now they're trying to come in as just another denomination. Yeah, it was it was a very soft... It was like, but if you just read it and pray about it, you'll, you'll know in your heart. He'll open your eyes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like any, like, here's some solid facts. Yeah. It was like, and they read me a passage, and they're like, oh, it's, it's so sweet and so nice. I'm like... And, and the danger is, is that that's oftentimes what the encouragement I'd give other people too. Look, just read the Word of God. It's self-authenticating. If yeah. you read it, um, Jesus will open your eyes if you, you know, if you have faith. So that's what's dangerous about it is they come with the same tactics. They're like, look, just read the Book of Mormon. You know, we'll, we'll be tactic. praying and, you know, and be honest in your prayer. And so... Um, that's where I think it's it's good to. I agree I, with you. I want to come back with them to, with scripture and say like, what do you? How do you deal with this scripture, which right. might contradict them? How do you deal with this? What is your belief on this? And right. just hit them with solid fact. Because well, just they're force, otherwise going force them to, be to, to not based on notice fact, and based recognize on that there's a difference. Relevancy. I I would I would encourage you to pick one topic of disagreement that the Mormons believe, and I I, I think the deity of Christ is probably the most important and easiest. They also believe in salvation by works as well as faith. You, right. could, you could press on that, but the deity of Christ is where I'd, I'd pr think that'd be my suggestion where to go. Okay. Bone up on that a bit, um, study some of the stronger arguments for that, and then start talking about who is Jesus. But prepare to have to get them to say what they mean, because right. they'll they'll be happy to call Jesus God with a small G. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you got to start asking questions like, was there ever a time when Jesus was not? Ooh, yeah. Okay. So you got you got to press yeah, them on things like that. No, this is why it took me twenty minutes talking to a Mormon on the street a decade ago because oh yeah, no, we believe Jesus is God. Because you have to nitpick. Yeah, them. no, and so you got to define because they've they've been the new shift is to co-opt our terminology and use the same terms so they'll sound like just another denomination. And right. so you got to start pressing. What do you mean by those terms? Not not being a jerk about it all. Just, but just define your terms. Right. Basically. Right. Are we believing in the same Jesus? Because the Jesus I'm believing in has always been, and he's always been God. Yes. And you start pressing on that, and you're going to find no, they don't believe that. And then you okay. okay. Um, then list. Then we got a disagreement. And I think the New Testament clearly teaches the the eternality, the divinity of the Son of God. And if the Book of Mormon disagrees, then I think that proves it's not Scripture. And then, okay. you're, then you've got him back on your turf, the New Testament. Because he's going to try to say, well, the New Testament doesn't teach Jesus as God like that. Well, yes, it does. And now you've got a New Testament Bible study going on, which is a much better place to be than in the Book of Mormon Bible study. Yes, because um, we well, need to actually be. get rid of that first by um, proving that the Bible and right. not contradict. So. Right. So just ask them right off the bat, if the, if the Book of Mormon contradicts Scripture, would you mm -hmm. agree if that can't happen in the Book of Mormon be Scripture? Yep. Okay. I, I, as I understand, yeah. Zed's one one thing um, yes. that uh, is extremely helpful that Mormons um, James White they, they don't James White has a lot of really good information on that yeah. um, but Mormons they will beat around the bush but when you actually press them on it they are fully polytheists 
Um, in fact, they are they believe their official teaching is that there's like an infinite number of gods because every god yeah, was you begotten be and reproduced by another god. Um, if you can get them to admit that, which is difficult they don't want to come out and say that they're sneaky about it um isaiah uh let's see what's the what's the just a second um sorry one second i had it pulled up here okay isaiah 43 uh chapter uh 10 or isaiah 43 verse 10 and 11 um explicitly before me no god was formed nor shall there be after me i am the lord and besides me there is no savior um right there that yeah demolishes their claim like that is absolutely without excuse that destroys their argument of of polytheism they but they, again, they, they believe that we can all become gods with our own worlds that we populate with our spirit children and that god who we, the person we call god was once like us somewhere else and he's just like, there's just, yeah. They, yeah, Jeff Durbin with uh, Apologia Church is also a okay. really, really good okay. um, resource, resource yeah. on that. That, that reminds me of Mark Dever. Mark Dever tells the story. He was, he was, Mark Dever's got this deep, booming voice. And he's, I was walking down the street with a friend of mine, and I saw two Mormons up ahead of us. So I raised my voice and said, I was just reading Joseph Smith the other day. And they turned around and stopped. We started talking. And a few minutes later, I said to them, this idea that you have that man can become like God, I think that is something you find in the Bible. And they were surprised to hear that. They said, yeah, that's exactly what the serpent said to Eve. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it's, it is written somewhere. It's true, right? Um, it's exactly the lie the serpent tried to sell to Eve. So, anyway, um, see me afterwards. I got some books, some stuff. But that, the simply put, I'd go there. Yes, we have another question somewhere. Yes, you have a microphone. Oh no, you got go. a, we got a microphone. Yep. Yes, sir. Hi, Greg. I'm Steve. Hey, Steve. Um, I'm Greg. The blind, non-discerning lawyer. The what? The blind, non-discerning lawyer. Okay. I've uh, been appreciating Jeremy's insight into uh, preordination, predetermination lately. Uh, can you give me some idea of what hardening of the heart is and a reprobate mind? Mm. And keep what, it keep it simple for me. What hardening of the heart is? And yes, hardening of the heart. And is this predetermined? Is this... Oh, you're getting into grounds here that I was not prepared to discuss. And he wants you to answer it, Greg. So I'm I know, waiting to I hear what you're going to say. So is hardening of the heart predetermined? Um, I guess you'll have to wait until Jeremy doesn't know. I'm just kidding. Um, so you're getting into free, you know, whether or not there's a there's a will at all, whether or not it's predetermined. I'm trying to understand your question correctly here. I believe there is free will. I believe it's um, present at the same time that God has predetermined our salvation. Yeah, well, there's there's a very huh? Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm going. Um, there's <laughs> a <laughs> there's a unique. I mean, it's a mystery. It, it is a mystery. But as as I see it in scripture, um, it is clear that there is there there's going to be a judgment or a condemnation for what you do. So you are held responsible for what you do. So there is, in a sense, this, this free will. You're choosing to 
turn away. You're choosing to um, not um, hear the word and keep it. But also there's this, this uh, we're running along the same track at the same time, this belief that God is sovereign and over all things. And the way it wraps up is outside of my comprehension. I'm, I'm just pointing to what the Bible says. So I think Jeremy mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, but David, when he sins in numbering the Israelites, David feels conviction himself. He, he says, I have sinned in numbering Israel. But then you also get within that same story that Satan tempted David to to number Israel. And then you have as well, the Lord caused David to number Israel. So you've you've got like three factors going. You have David and his own will numbering Israel and being sinful for it. You have an outside force that's you know, Satan um, test, or tempting David to number Israel. And then you have God sovereignly standing behind it all. Um, it's, it's a, it, it is too beautiful for, for me to explain in some ways. So I'm kind of punting. Um, but if you, if you want to know, do I think that our choices matter? Yes, our, our choices matter. Um, do, is God still sovereign and in control of all things? Yes, he is. How does that work? Um, we read our Bibles, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So get to work because God is working within you. Um, a lot of, yeah, it, a, a lot of what, what the Bible con- calls concurrence or compatibilism, or not the Bible, sorry, what theologians call concurrence and compatibilism. Um, so yeah, there's choices that we make that we're going to be held accountable for, but God's still sovereignly uh, governs all things for the good of his people and by his will. Is that does that work for you, Steve? Is that what you're looking for? <laughs> Doesn't work, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I let me jump in before Greg. I, I think that everybody, whether you're a total um, Arminian, free will only person or whatever, has to recognize there's some mystery involved. Um, everybody does. Because um, if, if I'm going to talk to the total Arminian, God has no control at all. He just lets whatever happens happen. I, I'll just ask him, did God know um, how many people would choose him and how many would reject him? Did he know before he made the universe that the overwhelming majority of humanity would reject him? And either they're going to say, yes, he knew, or they've got to go to open theism. Say, yeah, God doesn't know the future, and now you've got a whole other set of problems. But if he knew, then I'll say, okay, and he chose to go ahead anyway. He chose to go ahead knowing that the vast majority of humanity would reject him. Isn't there a sense then of tacit approval or determination there at all? So they've got to deal with that. What, what Greg's saying, and what I think the Bible teaches, is that um, somehow divine sovereignty, as much as this may be the way we'd intuit it, does not nullify human agency, choice, and responsibility. That somehow the two are compatible which is the term compatibilism does not in any way intend to explain how that works. Mystery, no doubt. But that simply the Bible is as it does. We would assume once you've named and identified a causal agent, we've excluded all other agents of causality. And again and again, the scriptures will say things like, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did Joseph's brothers intend this or did God intend this? Yes. And even in the record of Pharaoh, he hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. 
And I don't think it's like they took turns. This time Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. Next time God's going to harden his heart. Rather, we're looking at the same thing from two, two vantage points. And in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work within you. And when we finally get to our series on election and predestination, which I think will start shortly after Resurrection Sunday, the very opening thing is going to be trying to lay this out, because if you don't get this, you're going to really struggle, because every time you hear a passage like Psalm 95 saying, don't harden your hearts, you're going to think, obviously, if that means anything, I'm being called to do something, I'm being called to respond. And so if I have influence over whether my heart's hardened, and if you don't buy into the compatibilistic notion, then that excludes God from being involved, right? Which is, I think, where you're, you're jumping off point. You're reading Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And if that means anything, and it's an appeal for us to do something, to respond in a certain way. And if you don't believe there can be that dual causality, we've just excluded God from having anything to do with heart hardening because we're told to do something. And so... If, if, however, you, you believe that divine sovereignty and human agency somehow, I don't know how, somehow coexist and work together, then you can have Psalm 95 pleading, don't harden your hearts, and yet hear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart um, and not have a problem there. So if, if that's what you're saying, then that's where I'm at. But we'll, we'll go into this further later. But that's to make it as clear as I possibly can. We, no one twisting our arm behind our back, I firmly believe this, do whatever we want. God lets us do whatever we want. Now, the whole question of what do we want is a whole other issue. But, but you can do whatever you want. You're free to do whatever you want. Um, and yet, God says, I declare the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And we'll look at that as well. So don't know how those things work together. I just think the Bible lays it out that they do. And so we can simultaneously a, a, assign God his credit, his sovereign control that he's doing things and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And we can look at what people do and praise or condemn them for it without speaking out of both sides of our mouth. But there'll be a whole message Q&A and series coming up in another month or two diving into this much deeper. So um, we'll punt for now. We'll punt for now. Greg, unless Greg wants to bring well, us home. Inexplicably, Jeremy, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> JP. So one way that um, I... He's picking the ball back up. He wants to get, <laughs> he wants to get a few more yards well, downfield. Okay. I love the subject. So um, one way of that I kind of wrap my head around this idea is I imagine light casting a shadow from a rock. When you ask who's casting the shadow, is it from the light? That doesn't make sense because light intrinsically doesn't cast shadows. Well, is it the rock's fault? Well, no, because the rock doesn't produce any light. It's them working together cast the shadow. So when you ask whose fault is it, you, you run into the same problem with man and his culpability and God's sovereignty. God's going to cast this light on your life. And whether you cast a shadow or not, he declares the means of that. He tells you, listen, these are the rules of the game. You're going to cast a shadow if you do these things. You can not cast a shadow if you do these things. So don't do these things. And that's how that, I think that's how that works. JP's figured it out. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I track, I'm not sure I track his explanation, but I believe if I could. It sounds good. It sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. No, no. I just said no twice. Again. Okay.
that negates the first no, right? So it's yeah. Like, yeah. Um, another example Wayne Grudem gives is this, and granted, this is a, a reduced analogy, but if you take like the story of of, um, of Macbeth, um, um, who does Macbeth kill? He kills the king, right? Who? Okay. Who who killed the king? Macbeth. What about Shakespeare? Could you say Shakespeare did it? And Grudem's simply pointing that we can, from different vantage points, recognize... Now, that's, the difference is Macbeth's not a real person, right? But we are spoken people, spoken into existence, and so there's some... Anyway, it's a weak analogy, but anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. Well, I'm punting for another month or two, um, lest we make the, the series unnecessary. Um, <laughs> We've got to leave something for the, yeah. for the tapes. Questions? You want to go again? Go, sure. go for it. Anyone? No? Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, see, if you don't have a good answer, you just talk. Right? You know, and eventually people don't care and they get bored and then they you know, get off your case. Um, sorry. Um, oh, Lee's got oh, wait for the Wait for the mic, microphone. Microphone. It's not really a question. Uh, it's just a comment on talking to Je uh, well, Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody, Mormons, whoever. I think your best bet is just to try, pick one point, like they were suggesting, plant a seed. That's all you're going to be able to do with these people. Just put a, a seed of doubt in their head and then show them their way because you're not going to be able to, sorry. We plant, we water, but God gives the ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God we need to be faithful to with sharing the word, with yeah. defending the truth, but we can't change their hearts. But yeah, I think sitting down, and where it, it wishes. it's great, I mean, to sit and talk with them, but I think you're you're optimistic that you would make a big difference and that they would say, oh my gosh, you're right. Oh, no, it ain't going to happen. So I would say plant that seed of doubt. And just get them in the Word. The Word has power. The Word is what the Spirit's going to use to give life. So don't don't get to the Book of Mormon. Get them to the New Testament. Yeah. That's what you can, and that's the other argument you can make is we both agree this is the Word of God. Mm -hmm. We don't both agree the Book of Mormon is. So can we talk for a few minutes about, about what we both agree is Scripture? Because some time then there. we have common ground to work on. Zeb wants to jump back in. Just kind of, so, whoa, that's loud, sorry. Um, kind of piggybacking um, off what my mom just said, one of the worst things you can do in one of these situations is to, like, do the shotgun blast and try to do every single objection, or, like, every single possible objection, bring everything to the table, because inevitably what you're going to end up doing is you're going to bring some really weak arguments, some really stupid arguments that aren't at the center um, I mean, Mormons officially are still polygamous. That is, that's their official position. Um, and that's part of it. That's not the center. And if you, if they can discredit your, your claim on polygamy, then the, basically they've discredited most of the rest of your arguments. So figure out a hand, like two or three, like figure out your points that you're going to make stick to the strongest points that you can absolutely like hammer home from scripture. I would, like I said, I would start with the, with a monotheism issue. Mm. Um, but don't, don't just be like, well, Joseph Smith was a, was known to be a scam artist, which is a fact, but that's not the relevant thing. And my encouragement, whenever you're, you're sharing the gospel or talking with someone from a different faith, you always want to get to the question of who is Jesus? Yeah. Uh, that's at the center. That's what divides us and everyone else. It's always Jesus. It's all these other ancillary things are only stem from who is Jesus. They, they want to have a different view of who Jesus is. 
um, or they have a different view of who Jesus is. And if you can zero in on that point, who is Jesus, then you can point out to them, look, we're not the same. Here's what we believe. Do you believe? You know, or here's right. what the, you know, what is truth? Do you believe? Because at the end of the day, you want them to be convicted. Absolutely. You don't you go want, in there to win an argument. You, want you them go to in be there convicted to convicted by scripture, yeah. not by your good argument. Exactly. I figure you want to win the person, and these are the only people who are going to come to you that you can witness the gospel to. So, uh, come. Here's here's the text. It's Second uh, Timothy two twenty four. The Lord's slave or bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's your responsibility. If perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. Now you don't fail if they don't. Escaping the snare of the devil. God, God, God holds you responsible for the first half. So that's good that you're asking. You got to do some studying because you got to be able to teach. You got to be able to correct. And you got to be gentle, not a jerk. And then God says, "That's what you worry about, and I'll worry about making it grow." So, um, so yeah, let God deal with the results. You just be faithful. You be a good witness, and part of that will involve studying. So, it's always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ten minutes. Greg? Oh, oh. Uh-oh. There is scripture, is there not, that says, however, that you don't give you don't cash your time to false teachers. You don't invite them Second into John your home. And even third John, right? Yeah. Um, so where does that, I mean, clearly, door-to-door, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Mormons, uh, they are coming as false teachers. Yep. Uh, so how, I guess, what is the, since though we, both of those things are true, how do you decide whether to take the time with the Jehovah's Witness hmm. or whether you look at them as false teachers and, and, and not allow them into your home? That is a great question. And that's a tension I think, I think we all have to live with when you're dealing with false religion and false religious evangelizers. From the one hand, these are dangerous people doing evil work. Um, these are enemies of the cross. These are uh, part of Satan's forces out trying to deceive the nations in the world. And yet they're somebody's sons, somebody's brother, right? Um, and in that sense, you feel it's, it's kind of like when I look at false teachers in the, in the Christian faith on the, on the TV and stuff. And you know, on the one hand, as they're writing books and deceiving people, I get angry. On the other hand, I got to remember this is somebody's husband, somebody's dad, and there's that tension, right? And, and both are true. Uh, I, well, let's start with the warning that you referenced. I believe it's um, is it Second John or Third John, Zeb? I think it's Second. Um, let me look at this. Verse ten. Yeah, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, there is some debate. I haven't studied this enough to know what I think. There's some debate on what is being prohibited here. On one end of the extreme, you've got, you can't let him into your house. You can't offer them a glass of water. You can't let them use your bathroom. And the people that hold that, like, I'll talk to you on my front porch. That's one edge of the extreme. The other end of the extreme... Has, thinks that this has in view itinerant ministry where just as Jesus sent them into towns and people received them into their house, there's a, almost like a support. You're, you're footing the bill for them. You're letting them stay at your house. You're giving them a greeting. You're welcoming them in. 
And that's what you're prohibited from doing. And the modern day equivalent would be like, you don't give money to their fund. You know, you don't house one of their missionaries for the week so we can go out and do work. I'm not entirely sure where I'm at in that spectrum because we've got Luke 10 where Jesus sends out the 70 and talks about people receiving into their homes and all that. So we've got from within the Bible, the context of this type of stuff's um, normal. I tend to think it's probably more something like that. But I totally can respect the people who are like, look, I can't let you inside my house. So I'm going to stand on the front porch. I'm not going to say they're out of line. Uh, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing would be go to Jude. Um, Jude and, and John MacArthur did a, did a fantastic job. It's one of the last sermon series I heard of his before I left California was going through Jude. And he talks about dealing with people who I believe um, are false teachers, and he deals them in three categories. So in Jude, excuse me, um, where, yeah, there it is, um, verse 20. There's no chapters because it's just, yeah. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And without time to dive into it, MacArthur argues, and I thought he did it correctly, that you're dealing with three levels of false teaching. Remember, Jude wrote... He wanted to write about their common salvation, but it was urgent to help encourage them to charge them to contend for the faith. So there's danger, there's false teaching going on, and he's writing this letter to deal with that. And he spends most of his letter dealing with that. And here at the end, the first are those who doubt. The second are those who are being snatched as though out of the fire. And the third literally is a stained undergarment, a soiled Undergar- a poopy diaper, for lack of a better term. And so in this, you're, you're, notice the growing levels of caution in your interaction. right? Um, one is just those who doubt. This, this would be the equivalent of somebody who's maybe been going to a, a Mormon, Jehovah Witness church for a week or two or three. He's got questions. I don't know what's going on. And there's, no, there's no, don't waste your time with them going on with that first category. The next one, though, um, is to those who oh, good grief. Um, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And snatching um, is, is more of a quick act, right? And then the last one is um, show mercy to others with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Imagine if you had to pick up a soiled undergarment, you would do it very gingerly with a stick or a fork or something that you would then throw away. And you would be very careful not to get it on yourself. And when you're dealing with, with you know, the ensconced, knows what they're talking about, false teachers, that's, MacArthur was saying, the position you're most taking is a very ginger and delicate one. You're still willing to give them some time, but you're not just hanging out constantly because this person is a dangerous person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd probably look at the missionaries in that second category, the snatching them out of the flames. The, the bottom line is if they're willing to talk and reason from the scripture, I'd give them time. If they're not willing to do that, don't waste your time. If, if they're willing to open the Bible, read it with you, and discuss it, that, that's, good things will come from that. If they're not willing to do that, then you guys disagree. And, and basically, if you can't agree on a common authority source, you're not going to have much of a conversation. Now, if you both can agree, the Scriptures are the Word of God, 
even though you disagree about the Book of Mormon status, then with that agreement, you can read the scriptures and discuss it and see what it says. If you can do that, that sounds good to me. But yeah. Okay. So basically, if we can come to the common point of some common ground, yeah. it's, it's fine to have discussions with them. Yeah, it's profitable. It's profitable. It is potentially You're, profitable. It's always it. profitable to read God's word and discuss right. it. Yeah, for yeah. your own personal growth and also yeah. for mm-hmm. that's what makes modern day apologetics things. so difficult. Is there is no agreed upon common ground. Right, definitely. <laughs> so you know, it's just really hard to have a conversation with someone when your foundations are radically different. Um, all you can do then is critique their foundations while they critique your foundations and see whose building falls apart quickest. <laughs> so basically, just hold the two points: word of God and deity of Christ, yeah. and just keep it at that. Yeah. And if they I mean, you don't have to pick the deity of Christ. I think that's a pretty central point. And it is it's a also point because relative. everything is based off of that. Mm-hmm. You can talk about salvation by justification by faith just as easily, because mm-hmm. um, they, they believe works enter into it too. I mean, I'd pick one of those two as the most central okay. um, two, and not, like Zeb said, the polygamy issue or something. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I was when I was talking to them, I... I listen to Jeff Durbin's podcast, and okay. he has all these arguments okay. and stuff, okay. and he talks about all these different things. And I'm like, okay, I've, I know what they think, and like, what's wrong, but I can't argue anything. I can only just spout off something I've heard. Okay. And so really, I just stood there, bare, no weapon in hand, pretty much just trying to say, okay, why? What is that? Like, I can only throw questions back at them. Right. It's far better to have one or two passages that you are comfortable with, competent with, can explain, mm-hmm. than to know 50 that you can't quite, they're just barely out of reach. And right. there's a lot of ways to get comfortable with that. You can under, I mean, Part of the reason I underline is to find things. Exactly. I, I have no system to my colors. Uh, I write in the back of my mind notes on things. I, I, will, I build arguments in my head. That's the way I, so I think of it like Lego bricks. So here's the premise. You know, on top of that premise is this, and then that, and that leads to this conclusion. Huh. And sometimes I'll even sketch that out somewhere on a piece of paper in just four points. Okay. You know, I got to make this point. I got to make this point. I got to make this point. Yeah, I'd like to do something like that. And even try to find a friend to talk it through. Let me. Can I take a minute and explain to you this one passage mm-hmm. and tell me how I'm doing with this, so that you can then feel comfortable spontaneously saying, "Well, let's go to John one." Okay. You know what I mean? Or whatever your passage is that you've looked at. So I'd, I'd encourage you to find two or three good passages on the deity of Christ, not a list of 500. But two or three passages that you're pretty comfortable, you, you know the context, you, you're familiar with what's going on in the whole chapter, and that you can speak to, and you have spoken to as someone else, mm-hmm. that then when they come up, you can pull that out and, you know, here. Um, you won't be ready for everything, no, but be ready I, for something. I probably will just let them know, like, hey, I've thought yeah. about this, and these are the two points I'd like to talk about. Right. I've worked out a couple different points and yeah. subjects and just try and hold to those and yeah. just let them know like this is about all I can yeah. work with. Well, the other, the other thing I'd recommend is when you take notes or listen to something, don't mm-hmm. just write down the reference. Write down what the point is. If you can't remember the point, write the point to death. I'll give you one closing example. Go to John 1. Okay. Now, the Mormons have a different interpretation, translation of John 1.1, 1, 1, um, which is usually viewed by a lot of people as the clearest verse of the deity of Christ. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and they want to make it the Word was a God, and since um, you don't know Greek grammar, and these guys almost certainly don't know Greek grammar, there's very little point talking about the Granville Sharp rule. We won't go there. I'll tell you the ESV and the New American Standard, the King James, and the NIV's translation is the right translation. John Piper made this point once, and I remembered it, 
and I'll point this out to you as just something. Keep reading in John 1. So like, we're going to disagree over 1-1. Because if you go to 1-1, they're going to go, ah, there's no the in the Greek. And right. unless everyone knows Greek grammar, you can't go, well, let me tell you about the Granville Sharp rule. So we'll just set that aside. Keep going. He was in the beginning with God. And here's the key. All things were made through him. Now watch how John clarifies what he means by all things. Because sometimes you can talk about all things and maybe not mean all things. This is one of those times it's really clear all things means all things. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's clear, right? So Jesus is in one of two categories. He is either made or not made. If he's made, who made him? According to that verse. No, he. All things, he made all things, and then to stress the point, without him, nothing has been made that has been made. So he can't, self-generation self is a logical nonsense. You can't get, you can't, you can't simultaneously be and not be. And self-generation demands that you simultaneously be and not be. Because I have to be there to do something to bring myself into existence. So I'm simultaneously present and not present which is logical nonsense, which is why I don't need to be a physicist to hear that the universe made itself is gibberish. How can it act and do if it's not present? It's just, from, a, from just a statement of what you're saying, it's nonsense. Right. Something can't be present and not present in the same way and in the same time. That's just the law of identity, um, A equals A. So Jesus can't be in that category because he made all things. And he can't make himself. That doesn't mean, I mean, that just doesn't mean anything. If you press what it's saying, it's from a thousand feet away, it might look like it's saying something, but what are you actually saying? He brought himself into being. So before he was being, he was doing some, yeah. So Piper just said, just press them on three um, and four. All things were made through him, and without him um, was not anything made that was made. Just verse three. He's got to keep reading to verse 3 and, and say, look, which category do you want to put Jesus in? The made category or the unmade category? He's unmade, he's eternal. He's made, we have a problem because then he has to make himself. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, now there's, now there's hundreds of arguments for the deity of Christ. There's one that I heard Piper mention that I remembered. If you'd like that one, jot down the logic of it. So it's, this is where you've got to go beyond just John 1, 3 because then you'll forget what the point of John 1, 3 is. So write down, Jesus can't be self-made, that's nonsense, or something somewhere. You can write it on the edge of your Bible or something. And so then you can bring it out and, and, and show it to somebody. But there's just like one example of something that, you know, the last time I spoke to Mormons, we went there. I was ready for them to argue about 1-1. One, one. Oh, no, that's fine, that's fine. Don't, we won't bother with 1-1. One, one. Let's go on to 1-3. You know, and you just need two or three things like that, as opposed to 50 verses somewhere that, that you can pull out and say, help me out here. What do you make of this? Our time is up. We're five oh, minutes. So, I, oh, Greg. I, I want to close okay. um, Greg wants to with close. this encouragement to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And what that means. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, as we leave here, just pray that you would, um, that you would cause the increase from your word in our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.